0: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's BookWaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with Robert Olin Butler was originally posted on January 26, 2017. My guest is Robert Olin Butler whose latest novel is Perfume River. Earlier books, tabloid dreams, Empire of Night, had a good time. Won the Pulitzer for a collection, A Good Scent from Strange Mountain. Six short story collections and just adding them up, 15 novels 16 now. 16 with this one. 16 novels now. Uh, this novel deals with Vietnam and its aftermath, more its aftermath as – have been several of Robert Olin Butler's books, including recently, They Whisper and The Deep Green Sea. But first, let's talk a little about Perfume River. It's the story of two brothers, one of whom went to Vietnam, the other of whom went to Canada. Several years later takes place in 2015. Uh, The character Robert is your age, and you went to Vietnam, This is a return to looking at Vietnam again. Recently, you had two thrillers set in the period of World War I. So why did you decide to return to the subject matter of Vietnam again?
1: Well, you know, I often refer to a thing that Graham Greene, the great British novelist, once said, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the quote for a reason that will be immediately apparent. He said, all good novelists have bad memories. He says, what you remember comes out as journalism and what you forget goes into the compost of the imagination. I have returned to Vietnam because it has returned to me after long composting. And it's not just Vietnam. It's really about family as well. In some sense, in the Graham Greenean composting sense, I've been working on this novel for at least 60 of my 71 years. And it's finally pulled itself together and indeed deals with more strata in my compost heap than any other book I've written. Trevor
0: Burrus So when you say 60 of your 71 years, that means that you're talking about your relationship with your father.
1: Well, it is and it isn't because part of the forgetting is that what the characters who come back out that have been indeed shaped or influenced by your actual lived life do not come out in a literal way as autobiography, often far from it. The father in Perfume River, who sits kind of in the dark center of the lives of both of his sons, who are important central characters in the book, is a World War II veteran, served under Patton as a a non-commissioned officer. He has returned with terrible secrets as most people who go to war do, and has had, crucially, has had a very difficult relationship with his sons, withholding any sense to them of his love and respect. My father, it's true, as it turned out, was a, a World War II veteran, served under Patton as a captain, an infantry captain, had his own secrets, which I've never learned, but sensed. But my relationship with him was drastically different from th- these guys he was um, almost obsessively supportive of me i think indeed rather heroically because he he was not supported by his own father who withheld his love in a way my understanding of that is also in my compost heap but william and robert in here are are definitely their own people you served as
0: an intelligence officer, you actually had a more central role in the war than Robert did in the book.
1: Briefly, yes. It's interesting because Robert's there in 1968 when the big Tet Offensive occurs. Which is before you were there. Significantly before. When I came in 19, I was there basically calendar year 71, which was an odd time. Nixon was beginning to pull us out. And indeed, I worked as a counterintelligence special agent in the first five months. But my whole experience there was deeply shaped by the fact that the Army sent me to language school for a year before I went over. I studied full-time the Vietnamese language with a native speaker for a year. Not an easy language to learn, basically because of its tonality. I was able to pick it up. From my first day in country, I spoke fluent Vietnamese. And on my second day in country, I fell madly, deeply in love with the Vietnamese landscape, its people, its culture. So for five months, I worked in intelligence and had close contacts with Vietnamese farmers, woodcutters, fishermen, provincial police chiefs. But then my unit went home and I had ingratiated myself with an American diplomat. Who was the advisor to the mayor of Saigon. And so he got me, grabbed me, made me his assistant, and I worked in a civilian clothes job, lived in an old French hotel, my favorite thing in the world every night for seven months. After midnight, I would wander alone into the steamy back alleys of Saigon where nobody ever seemed to sleep. I was armed only with the language. And I approached them. I'd crouch in the doorways with them. They invited me inevitably into their homes, into their culture, and into their lives. And so my impact on the war was minimal. But Vietnam's impact on me was enormous.
0: Well, two questions then. First, why did you choose to set Robert's time there at the height of the Tet or the day of the Tet Offensive? And why did you
1: choose to give him your first name? Well, two quite different answers on that. Robert, as all those who go to war in this book do, they have secrets. And and some of the secrets held in this book don't really have to do with war as such. But Hue, I was in Hue in one of my return trips to Vietnam after the war. I I knew the city. I knew the river. And I wanted Robert's experience to have been that odd— mixture of things that fewer than 20% of the people who went to Vietnam ever saw any combat. And that's not unusual. That's the bout ratio for all uh, military people go to war. I did not. And yet, I wanted the, the combat aspect of the war to... I say I want. It sounds like this is the process, that I figured it out ahead of time. Mm. The real answer is... I didn't make that decision, Robert did. When he emerged from my compost heap and insisted on having a novel written around him and others in his kin, these are the people who emerged and these were their backgrounds. Now, that's an answer that I think is closer to the truth. However, in retrospect, the good thing about it was and why my unconscious shows that is that Robert goes there thinking he's going to avoid combat, killing battle, but the war comes to him. That little paradigm is reflected in not just the way wars happen, but you know, as a kind of metaphor for the way relationships happen in families.
0: And his name, Robert.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not a nudge in the ribs saying, this is really about me. On the contrary, it's this is almost simplistic in that it There is another character in the book we haven't mentioned who is Bob, another Robert, who is a homeless man. The book opens in a – sitting here in Berkeley, you guys, you know, certainly understand organic food co-ops and their, their hot buffets. He sees a man who he takes to be a Vietnam vet at first, a homeless man, feeds him some dinner. He comes to realize that he's not a Vietnam vet. But he goes ahead and has this kind of odd connection with him. And I wanted that homeless man to have the same name as Robert, the character who became Robert. And I wanted Robert to have a formal version of the name and the homeless guy to have a a more casual sort of working-class version of the name. And from Robert's era... Robert and Bob is the best set of names. You could do William and Bill, but it's a little too euphonic. And you could do James and Jimmy, but that's a little childlike. Robert and Bob seem to have the right emotional tone.
0: Well, it could have also been Richard and Dick, I guess.
1: Could have. That's true. I mean, they could have been that. But Robert came to mind first. In terms of the compost
0: heap, was he at the very beginning of it or – even before Robert?
1: He came along at the same time. Interestingly, the book actually began with three short stories. I was commissioned by Granta to write a short story about nature and I just meditated not much and suddenly out of my compost heap came a banyan tree and a a Vietnam soldier who ends up in that tree in the midst, of hiding in the midst of Tet, which which Robert ultimately does, turned out really well. Conjunctions Magazine also commissioned a story about uh, abandonments or whatever I think it was called Abandonments, but of, of that sort. I wrote a story called A Wall, and it's about a Vietnam vet and his mother in this case, who has broken her hip and is dying in a in a in a nursing home. The two stories came out really well, and I thought I was launched into a a book of short stories that would serve as a kind of companion piece to A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain, which was about Vietnamese people whose sense of who they are, their identity, was shaped in Vietnam. They were exiled into a foreign country, which was America, where they had to reinvent themselves. Well, these stories that began to associate themselves with the book— Uh, which uh, what I thought would be a book, it was happening again. The characters were shaped in Vietnam, were exiled into a foreign country uh, where they had to reinvent themselves. Now, they happened to all be Americans and the country was America, but the foreign country they were exiled into was incipient old age and intimations of mortality, which is another place altogether and which also requires you to reassess who you are. Well I wrote a third story and that story was essentially the opening of Perfume River where a Vietnam vet sees a homeless man in an organic co-op. And so Bob and Robert together then began the book because as soon as I wrote that I knew it was a novel and the earlier two stories got assimilated into it later on.
0: So at that point, Robert Olin Butler, at that point you kind of finished that third short story and you went, aha, this is where the other stories get unfolded into it. The third story never got published at that point. Never got published, no. And just became the beginning of Perfume Exactly, exactly. And as the book progresses and as you're writing, suddenly you realize there's another brother.
1: I did indeed because, of course, when the mother story, the short story, got it got flipped into the father because I knew that Bob's father is terribly important in the book as well, the homeless man. Though Bob missed Vietnam by a decade or so, his father was a Vietnam vet. And that man's secrets and that man's relationship to him was was a kind of dark parallel to – Robert's relationship with his own father. And as soon as Robert's relationship with his father came in, then I knew there was another son who took a different path in dealing with a father whose love and respect you are deeply trying to win. And Robert's way of trying to win it was to do the thing he thought his father wanted him to do, go into the army and go to Vietnam His brother, however, goes to Toronto and has not seen the family in 45 years when the book begins.
0: About partway through, there's a point where Bob gets a gun. Yes. there's that point, it suddenly occurred to me, this book is not what I think it is. Your two previous books were thrillers, your earlier books were not, and in fact, they were a lot of short stories. At what level do you think creating a thriller in those books made you realize that you could take Perfume River to another level in terms of
1: plot? You are so clever, Richard. This is why it's been too long. It's been over a decade since we've talked, and I don't want another decade to go by. You're absolutely right. In fact, As a matter of fact, there were three books in that Christopher Marlowe Cobb series. I wrote three books in three years for Otto Penzler and the Mysterious Press. Now, I feel they are just as literary as my other books. In fact, they all began on a short story with a book that you and I talked about the last time. had a good time. It came from a story that was very literary in that book was in the Atlantic Monthly, won a National Magazine Award in Fiction. But Otto discovered it and said, I love this guy. Can you do some novels with him? And I said, you bet. Because that voice was still in my head. He's a swashbuckling American war correspondent during World War I, becomes a spy, as most war correspondents did in that era. Those three books I love. They stand on their own. I owe Otto one more, which I'm in the middle of now. However, they were also a three-year workout in the gym. I had certain muscle groups that I had, and I had flexed it before, but those three books were – I bulked up and I nuanced them so that indeed when I wrote Perfume River – I found those muscles in me and started flexing them. The book list, which is a great pre-publication review outlet for the American Library Association, the reviewer who loved the book referred to the backbeat of suspense in it. And you just put your finger on the moment when it begins. And I don't think that would have been in the book as certainly not as effectively, but maybe not at all if I hadn't written those those Cobb books.
0: Well, you see after that that the characters are slowly going to come together yes. in toward an event, and we're moving toward the event. I mean, there's other suspense in terms of how the brothers are gonna relate to each other, but that's the key, and that's picking up as the book goes along, and it becomes clear, particularly in the last, I'm not gonna give anything away, mm. in the last 50 to 100 pages where it's a literary book, but it's also suddenly
1: becoming a page turner. Yes, indeed. I'm so glad you said that because it's, it, it, it felt like that to me too. That when was, you were uh, writing, it. indeed, that was the the ending of the book was a big rush. There's a long, as you said, I don't forget how my, I don't know how many pages exactly, but at, at, you know, at least f- fifteen thousand words or so of the at the end of the book is one long funeral scene where William. The father has died, and um, in, in through the book, and that's the broken hip part that came from that short story, and it brings everybody, all the principles in this book, come together in that in that scene.
0: A few other elements. One element is you decided to make Robert a history professor, and his wife Darla interested in semiotics. Why semiotics?
1: She got interested in the thing that I got interested in. I teach at Florida State University, which is over in Leon County, Florida, in the middle of the panhandle. I happened to have, very fortunate, I bought within easy commute, you know, 30 minutes commuting distance from campus, I bought over in Jefferson County to the east, an antebellum plantation home when I first came in on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a wonderful little, wonderful house. Nine miles up the road is the is the county seat of Jefferson County, Florida. The county goes all the way from the Georgia border to the Gulf of Mexico, and there's not a, there's not a single traffic light in the whole county. It is that rural. In that capital seat, they they have um, a kind of little mini. That's why they call it Monticello, or they or at least why they, there's a little Jeffersonian domed courthouse. In front of it stands a monument from the late 19th century done by the Daughters of the Confederacy to the Confederate dead. It's full of this extraordinary purple impassioned prose. Almost every town of any size in the South has some sort of monument to the Confederate dead. Fascinating. There should be a book about these things because they're all locally done and they had all in the late 19th century, all these little women's societies and little literary societies, you just see the, little, the women of Monticello, Florida, writing this, this prose about their dead Southern, as they called them. And so that thing sat in the center of my compost heap for a long time. And Darla, Robert's wife, who teaches at Florida State as well, takes an interest in that to read it semiotically she kind of crossover between semiotics and art history to read the signs of that. What does it signify? In a way, in retrospect, again, this is not strategy. I'm not right. talking about my process. But in retrospect, I see that the book is always pushing outward from the Vietnam War. William, we get the, the narrator, uh, third-person narrator, omniscient, gets into William's inner life. We see him thinking of his own father. First of all, of his own experience in World War II and also of his own father who was in World War One. Robert's grandson comes in in the setting of that funeral and has a military interest for, him's own, for himself with ISIS coming. But Darla and her interpretation of her reading, her semiotic reading of this war memorial to the Civil War. Also then begins to pull in that war as well, not just through the men, but through the women also. My compost heap, and why it took so long, it pulled families and wars together, not just in the, in the kind of narrow sense of Vietnam, but in terms of all war, and all families, you know, through history.
0: As I was going through my notes for this interview, I kept thinking where is Vietnam today historically, and the war? And I realized that 41 years ago is when the war ended. World War II, 41 years afterward, would be 1996. And I kept thinking, you know, we're so far away from it now. I mean, we can remember ourselves in 1996, and World War II was ancient history. And now, in that respect, the Vietnam War is ancient history and yet at the same time – and I think this is apparent in Perfume River – on some level, it's still being fought. Does that make sense to you? It
1: makes great sense, Richard. And I think one of the reasons is – and I'll go back to that statistic I cited earlier. The corollary is over 80 percent of the men who went to Vietnam – they're mostly men who went into combat – that 80, over 80 percent of the men who went to Vietnam never saw battle as such and all the people in the states. It was the first televised war. And as we know, I mean, in this very city, it was spawned significant social movements in a way that other wars had not. And one of the reasons is we saw it. We were witnessing it. We were touched by Vietnam too. And for those 80 percent who went and for all the people in this country, all those folks were shaped by Vietnam in a dramatic way. It wasn't what the 18% saw is out in the jungle being forced to kill each other, but quite something else. What it was is the most of us experienced the collision of cultures. The melting pot had its first cracks put in it. We were, all of us, challenged to reassess who is our own and who is the other and you can see the effects of that on the evening news tonight
0: and i keep thinking that as you were saying that that it also was the dawn of american cynicism
1: sure absolutely
0: in the mid-60s there were suddenly questions a lot of questions and they kind of paralleled vietnam about who we are, who we trust, what the government is. And this ran up against the generation coming out of World War II, which had been saved twice, once by the Depression and Roosevelt, and the second time by the war itself, Mm -hmm. both of which were, quote, good things. Suddenly, the good things were all being questioned. And here we are 41 years later, and not only have they been questioned, but cynicism has blown up in our face.
1: Absolutely, no, you're quite right. You're absolutely right. We were all dewy-eyed Americans and and, and then we were introduced to moral ambiguity in a, in a very serious way.
0: When we talk about this, about Perfume River, Vietnam itself is different. When was the last time you were there?
1: The last time was 2007. I've been four times first time I was there was 94, just before the embargo was lifted, and then 95 right after, and then 2000, and then 2007.
0: By 2007, I know that I was in Cambodia just for two days last spring. While there were elements of the killing fields, most particularly, you go to a couple of monuments, that's about it virtually everybody there is too young to have experienced any of it. I saw very, very few older people there.
1: Is it the same in Vietnam? Absolutely. When I was there in 2007, I stayed at the Hanoi Hilton. The Hilton in Hanoi. What more do you need to say? It was dramatically different. Their governmental transition is still a little behind the curve. But the people are absolute, always have been, Absolute pragmatists. I mean, even in the 94 before the embargo was lifted, I never had a sideways glance. I mean, they're a warm and generous spirited people. They're a country of pragmatists. They always were. And this was our profound ignorance about Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh in 1918, you might remember this from A Good Sand from a Strange Mountain. He rented a suit of, of, of formal clothes and went to the Versailles Treaty Conference to try to have an audience with Woodrow Wilson. This is before he became a communist, because he thought that Wilson, representing the United States, would understand his ambitions to lift colonialism, imperialism from the Vietnamese people. He was rebuffed and then he ended up in Moscow because that was the next place to turn. And then in 1945, when the Japanese had occupied Vietnam, he was in the jungles of Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh, with his the, the original core cadre of the Viet Minh, and the United States sent two OSS officers, the precursor to the CIA, to the jungles of Vietnam. They were called the Deer Team to help train Ho and his Viet Minh to kick the Japanese out. While they were there, Ho picked their brains for the wording of the Declaration of Independence. And when Ho declared Vietnamese independence in 1946, if you translate it from the Vietnamese, it's the American Declaration of Independence. Every city and town in Vietnam has a statue to a Vietnamese hero. And the hero is a hero because they kicked the Chinese out. So that whole domino theory, the sense of, of Vietnam being purebred communists, they were pragmatists. We drove them in 1918 into the arms of the communists and they are now in practical terms, the government's lagging, but in practical terms, they are the closest to us of any Asian people.
0: When I was in Cambodia, the feeling there was twofold. Number one, they appreciate the fact that the Vietnamese were the ones who drove out uh, Pol Pot. On the other hand, they didn't have many nice words to say about the Vietnamese because they're kind of imperialists compared to the Cambodians. A very mixed, mixed feeling. But then when I watched the Al Smith dinner, one of the people there was Henry Kissinger. We can't escape the fact that Among the people who led us down a path of death and destruction was this man who was still in a position of power.
1: And extended that path for several years for political gains. Yes, absolutely.
0: The ironies abound. I mean, how do we finally get away from Vietnam?
1: Oh, man. (laughs) I think the book suggests we, we cannot. And maybe we shouldn't. I mean... The cynicism you mentioned, it's not entirely a bad thing. I mean, I'm glad we're cynical now. It's too easy, especially when wars are concerned, to glorify them, to romanticize them, to justify them. It takes a deep current of cynicism to reject the impulses that human beings have to go to war. The book explores on lots of levels why people seem to gravitate to war and I don't think that Vietnam, if you once encountered, I don't think there's any way to escape it.
0: In a way, we can escape other wars. I mean, when we look at Iraq, in some sense, we're past that. We're in a new, new idea there. Yeah. But Vietnam still haunts us, I think.
1: Yes, it does. I think part of it is, has to do with the fact that Vietnam was the last conscripted war we fought. Everyone who goes to Iraq, to Afghanistan, wherever, they are all in the army because they have chosen to be there. There were vast numbers of people going to the Vietnam War who wished they weren't, who were conscripted, who were forced to make as very young people choices that were very difficult with a government that had its own ignorance and its own ill intentions and, and so... That's an element here, too, because who we are, I mean, I think that fiction is the art form of human yearning. It's what we want that drives narrative. And in literary fiction, it's the deepest level of want, the art form of human yearning. And I've come to think that there might even be a kind of unified field theory of yearning, that if you dig deep enough in literature, that most great works of literature, the yearning is I yearn for a self. I yearn for an identity. I yearn for a place in the universe. And going to war and being in war and bonding with fellow soldiers and, and coming to terms with who you are and living with a kind of cosmic consciousness all the time. Those things are powerful in shaping who you are. And If you are also there, having been forced to go there, having achieved whatever level of sense of who you are in quite a different context. And saying, oh, you think you're that, are you? Well, here, go, go into a place where the reason that you and your fellows are there is to, is to kill a lot of folks and be killed by them. Then that sense of who you are gets deeply challenged. And it's, it's like, as I was saying earlier, that's the thing that, that binds a good scent from a strange mountain to Perfume River at the deepest level. People yearning for an identity. So Vietnam is inextricably bound up with, with that great, who the hell am I, which we all ask ourselves every day.
0: Robert Olin Butler, speaking of who am I, there's another element, which you mentioned before briefly, which underlies Perfume River, which was brought out in a Times review of it. Our hero, Robert, is 70 years old, both his parents are alive, and it occurred to me that A lot of people I know who are in their 60s or 70s have living parents, some of whom are still compass mentis, which means we're dealing with people who have to deal with growing old themselves having to deal with even older people. Are your parents still alive?
1: No, but they died not so long ago. My mother was 92 and my father was 88 when they died. So there was that relationship ongoing in my life. absolutely. Absolutely. You know, geriatric medicine has gotten terrific. And my dad had a you know, major bypass surgery when he was in his mid-60s and would not have survived that in another era. He would not have survived his heart.
0: We're dealing with people who are reaching an age, who are dealing with people who have gotten to that age and are still going on. I think the New York Times calls it the new old age. And this is one of the first novels I've seen that actually deals with a 70-year-old with both parents alive who are both not in nursing homes.
1: That's true. I hadn't thought of that, but I, th- I can't think of another example of that either. And indeed, facing the challenge of things that the oldest of them, having kept secrets, their own secrets, and this younger, older people having their own secrets and those secrets coming into conflict, which you know which happens in all, in all families, but you don't you often don't end up having those at the age when, keeping or, re- or, or letting go of secrets that you've held all your life becomes a very interesting uh, question of whether to do it or not. That's unique to the age relationships you were describing there. Do you
0: think you plumbed all of their secrets?
1: No, I, I don't think I did, frankly. And uh, But my publisher loves this book enough that they, they immediately signed me to a two-book contract to do a second book – of this ilk, and i and I honestly feel like I've reached I found a new gear <laughs> in right. my in my gearbox here. You know, it may not be under these same names, but there are many more secrets to unfold in in these kinds of relationships.
0: The part of the book that I felt was incomplete at the end was the story of Jimmy the boy and the man, the sixty eight <laughs> year old <laughs> in Canada. Who has more things to uncover there? Ah, that's what you're
1: asking about. You know, it, it's quite true that that Jimmy and Linda, who has just left, you know, has a, that there's a problem in that relationship that happens. His life there is, uh, you know, still shrouded in secrets. They do not come to the same, the same place that Robert and William and Peggy come to. His right. mother. Robert and Darla are a little more central in the book than Jimmy and his wife. I am going to write more books from this, from this part of my compost heap. It's not out of the question that I will return even to these characters at some point.
0: Well, you can kind of see that at a certain point Robert and Jimmy, if they're going to have a relationship – there's still more to be revealed.
1: I, th- that's a very shrewd observation, Richard, and I will I will put that in my compost heap. <laughs> Robert Olin Butler, you're in Tallahassee
0: area. Are you in a very Trumpish area?
1: Jefferson County, my own county, has so few people and it's only fourteen thousand, and they're fairly widely scattered. It would not surprise me if if that is a Trump area, but Leon County. Tallahassee is uh, is a has always been a bright blue spot in um, in the midst of of a, a fairly red state.
0: Perform River does not deal at all with race. Is the county mostly white? Then
1: those counties. Yes, Jefferson County is mostly white. Where I live, Tallahassee is not. Leon County is not. But the proportions are more like the country as a whole rather than. Uh, you know, intense urban areas. A
0: question that doesn't come up in the book, but just curious, is William
1: a racist? Is William a racist? That is an interesting question. I know, it, it doesn't come up in the book, and so it's not in my consciousness. He did not get tested in that way, and on his deathbed, it was not a, um, an issue. It was his son who was the most difficult problem and his own relationship to his own father. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I wouldn't know.
0: Well, it's not completely untangential because of Darla's interest in the Daughters of the Confederacy. Well, that's
1: true. Although, again, her interest there has not to do with the sins of the Confederacy, but for the the longings uh, of the women who were left behind. That's the resonance for her.
0: Robert Owen Butler, this is a question, again, you know, looking in retrospect, because when you're writing, you're not getting it. Are there any tips that you learned in terms of creating suspense in a book that you've picked up and have become almost second nature by the time of Perfume River?
1: I have not formulated any tips in terms of techniques and tips of sus- about suspense because it's not something that I teach. All the tips I have about process and writing, I have been led to articulate them and formulate them and articulate them because that's what I teach. I've been teaching creative writing and graduate fiction programs for 32 years. And these people all come to me aspiring to be artists, writing the literary genre. But I do not teach them a conscious technique to enhance suspense in the novels that they write or the stories. I don't have any, any tips and i'm probably going to avoid formulating any because a lot of people often ask me do you learn from your students or do you are do you are are you stimulated in your own creative work by teaching and my answer is absolutely not on both cases in fact it's a serious danger because it is the it is self-consciousness self-awareness of your own technique that is the problem It's my quarrel with the pedagogy of creative writing because most creative writing workshops are so focused on craft and technique in an analytical, thoughtful, tippy way. Uh, And that's never gotten past. You can go through – you can get an entire MFA degree matriculation and never have process mentioned to you, the artistic process in any way other than implicitly in – Sit around, read the stuff, whatever draft you get out, then look at it in this analytical, thoughtful way. Consult your intellectual understanding of your of craft and technique and how things work. Analyze the problems of your script. Willfully apply the craft and technique to fix it. That's the antithesis of the artistic process. And so the danger is – being too conscious of that. Now I make good use of my Graham Greeney and Good Novelist Bad Memory in order to forget the ill effects of reading really bad stuff and teaching stuff in a kind of self-conscious way. And I also think that the craft and technique that people learn in workshops, the only craft and technique that you have authentic legitimate control of is the craft and technique that you have forgotten. Graham Greene obviously was speaking of life experience, but it's also true of craft and technique. You must forget the craft and technique into the same place where your life experience is so that it works in a natural way.
0: Almost like if you're editing, whether it be an interview or a book – You know exactly where to cut, but you couldn't necessarily tell
1: you why. Exactly. Just the way, by the way, the athletes do that too. If Steph Curry thought about where he's putting his hand on the ball when he's about to shoot a three-point shot, you know, he will not hit the shot.
0: The title, Perfume River, it refers specifically to the river in Hue, but it's also, I
1: guess, about the sense of what the place is. Yes, indeed, that's true. Perfume River flows through Hui. It begins in the highlands, flows through Hui, goes down to the South China Sea. For 100 miles or so upriver of Hui, there are have always been fruit orchards along the river. And at a certain time of year, those fruit orchards drop their blossoms into the river. And flowing down toward Hui, they begin to decompose. And by the time they get to Hui, the air is redolent with the smell of kind of perfumey smell. And in a way, as, as you were beginning to point out, it's not symbolic, Perfume River. I hate that. But it's certainly resonant of and suggestive of and associated with the ways in which memory works in the, in the book and in which the way in which war even works here.
0: Most people, when I talk to the, them about titles, the titles generally are problematic. It sounds to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that the title of this book then came pretty early.
1: Very early indeed. In fact, it came in that short story. In fact, it was probably one reason that I realized it was a novel, because it was there in that third story I wrote that never became a story. And as soon as that river flowed through that story, it, um, it kept right on into the novel.
0: Robert Olin Butler, you know, IMDb is really borderline on what's what exists or doesn't, I've found. Ah, yes. Uh, lists three pieces that two became short films. One was Staying the Course and the other was Jealous
1: Husband. Is that correct? I'm not aware of it. No. I, okay. it, I, I tell you what IMDb does. It does let uh, directors and writers who are putting their still nascent careers onto IMDb. It lets them fill out their resume there, and often they put things that they, they did in, in university mm. film programs. I think that both those things were probably from that. Nothing has ever been made. I, I had a long, f- lucrative career writing for hire did nine different screenplays for seven different studios I worked with, with Sidney Pollock and Oliver Stone and, and, and Bob Redford. And, and everyone loved my screenplays, which is why I kept working. And they go one to the other, and none of them ever got made. So, you know, <laughs> it could show up on uh, somebody's IMD uh, resume, but no, nothing happened.
0: And it said that you were working on something called The Decalogue, and it's like— Oh, that
1: was—I was paid to write a—yeah, th- I mean, that's— <laughs> So that's real. Somebody—those were theatrical screen slides I mentioned. I was also hired—then they should have—closer was Tabloid Dreams was actually optioned by HBO for a while. Ah. And, and they generated three uh, episodes of that. But it, again, it never got produced. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. That might have been, that might have been the Jealous Husband reference. Somebody – I didn't write that one. Somebody wrote that one. I, did, I think I wrote JFK secretly attends Jackie Auction.
0: Robert Olin Butler, now you've written Perfume River. You said you're working on another World War I novel.
1: I owed Otto Penzler one more book on a two-book contract. The third one was Empire of Night. Yes, I have one called Paris in the Dark, which I'm having fun writing. By the way, interestingly enough, writing those three Christopher Marlowe Cobb books actually influenced how I wrote Perfume River. I think Perfume River is influencing how I'm writing this fourth Cobb book so that there is this kind of ongoing dialogue in me between those two so-called genres, the illiterary genre and the historical espionage thriller genre.
0: Richard Price told me, uh, on his most recent book, which was supposed to be a quick thriller. He said, in the end, it turned out to be three years and another Richard Price novel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Two novels
0: have come out since this interview with Robert Olin Butler. Paris in the Dark, which was a Christopher Marlowe Cobb thriller and was published in September 2018, and another novel, Late City published in September 2021. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.